Good morning. Welcome, guys. Uh, so we as a church, we've been going through and studying the book of Acts, and we've been trying to uh, glean from it and learn from it the ways that the Holy Spirit was working in the early church. And, uh, and so we've seen him move mightily. We've seen him equip people for the work of the ministry. We've seen him uh, prophesy. We've seen him heal. We've seen him do all sorts of wonderful things, uh, equipping the church in order to spread this gospel, this good news about Jesus, right? That this was happening after Jesus had already uh, had his earthly ministry. He lived, he had died on the cross for our sins, that he had raised from the dead. And after visiting with his disciples for 40 days, he then sends them out on this mission to, to make his good news known to the world. And so as we've been studying this, like we, we find ourselves in the same timeline, the same time period as the early church in Acts. And, and some of it is just written, it's, it's history, it's events. Like Just like you might be following someone on Facebook and seeing just a bunch of random things that happen to them throughout their year, we see similar sorts of events that are just happening to different believers. And lately, we've been following the apostle Paul. And, and just like that, that song about blessed be the name of the Lord, we, we praise God, we bless God in the midst of his favor on our lives, and we also praise him even when we happen to find our lives going through seasons of suffering. And so I'm going to summarize. We'll put a map up on the screen. This was possibly going to turn into two sermons but I think I made it one. And uh, what, I, what I'm covering here in, in these two maps that I'll show you is from Acts chapter 27, in which Paul had just been on trial. Uh, he's been arrested. Uh, they were trying to put him to death in his efforts of preaching Jesus. The, the Jews had been offended at him, claiming that he's blaspheming God, claiming that someone else was equal with God. And, and he ends up appealing to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so many of his trials take place in uh, Israel, Jerusalem, Caesarea, but now he is sent away as a prisoner on a ship, and they are following the coast and trying to find good favor, good weather, uh, and all of these things, and he ends up uh, prophesying to the captain. All right, prophesying to the centurions that are keeping watch over him, saying, like, listen, like, we need to harbor here and stay here because there's going to be a storm. All right, like, this isn't going to be good for us. And so the next map, you'll see that as they travel, uh, they actually do encounter this crazy storm. People are freaking out. People are giving up hope. And Paul, who's obeying God, finds himself in the midst of this situation. And so part one of the sermon would have been about the whole idea that even when we're suffering, right, doesn't necessarily mean that we're outside of God's will. And so Paul actually gives these, uh, these people wisdom and tells them, listen, like God has told me that not a hair on your heads will be lost, that all the lives will be spared, but you will end up losing this ship. You will lose your cargo. Just do as I say. And so they end up kind of listening to him and they, they finally make it through this storm and, and run aground on this island of Malta. And uh, some of the centurions actually want to kill all of the prisoners for fear of risking their running away. All right, but uh, the, the head centurion, because he's recognized that, right, God's working through Paul, he's actually likes Paul. He, Paul finds favor with this guy that, uh, that he, he forbids that command. And as these kind of sopping wet prisoners and centurions come upon this island, they come to these 
barbarians, as the Bible calls them. And when we hear the word barbarians, uh, right, maybe we think about like, you know, the idea of just, you know, these monstrous men here to pillage and attack villages. But barbarians in the Bible and in this time period just meant people who didn't speak Greek, Okay, so they, they just spoke a different language. They were from a different tribe. And so this is where they land. So in Acts chapter 28, verse 1, is where we'll be picking up. And this is the last book in, uh, last chapter in the book of Acts. This is what it says. It says, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And so these people, right, are just really kind, uh, right? These people just come off this shipwreck up upon their shore. It's cold. It's actually, uh, I think it's October or November. It's kind of getting into winter season, which is why the storms were so bad. And, uh, and they start a fire and they, and they treat Paul and the rest with unusual kindness, right? So there's these nice barbarians, right? These, these decent folk. And, uh, and just the reason I think it's unusual is because Paul, as he's been preaching the gospel throughout kind of all of this Mediterranean area, right, he's encountered people who want to kill him, right, who have thrown rocks at him and left him for dead. Uh, he's encountered, right, the Jews who think he's blaspheming. He's encountered people who are uh, silversmiths and idol makers who feel as though when their cities are being converted to Christianity, people are throwing away their idols and so they're losing their business, their profits. And so they've had Paul arrested in the past. They've, right, Paul, when he cast a demon out of a fortune-telling little girl, uh, the owners of that girl were all angry because they viewed her as a means of income because she was able to, right, tell fortunes. And so, so Paul was thrown into prison in that instance as well. And so this is kind of like a time when it's like, Paul's finally met some nice people, all right? And so what's interesting is we see this encounter, like, Notice with me that Luke doesn't actually document whether or not Paul tells them the gospel. And that's interesting. Because I want us to ponder the question as to whether or not nice people need Jesus. Do decent people need Jesus? Okay, like, I I mean, consider it. Because I think that within our own valley, we find ourselves in this wonderful community, right? Where there's just really nice people generous and caring people. And now we've got to like consider the answer to this question because it's drastically going to change the way we react to our community, the way we pray for and pursue our community. Like, are, are we going to be trying to make and mature and mobilize disciples of Jesus in a community of people that are just decent folk? Or are they good on their own? Like, is, is their version of life and worldview just as good as ours? And should we just let it be. And so, so this is what I want us to consider. So let's keep reading this story. And so when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. All right, so, so just, just to be clear, in, in terms of just because there is suffering in your life doesn't necessarily mean that you're outside the will of God, right? Paul has been arrested for preaching the gospel. He's on this ship. He's gone through storms. He's actually been through several storms like this, right? Hanging onto a piece of wood, right? Trying to go through the ocean. He's been, in a previous instance, in, in the ocean for two days, right? Just clinging to, like, some wood, Right? And, and he finds himself in a similar situation. He comes upon shore and he's like, I can help start a fire, just helping out, and gets bit by a snake. 
right? Like we understand, we have this worldview where it's like we understand that sometimes when we do wrong, there might be consequences for our actions. We understand that in a fallen world, that because of the sins of other people, even when we do right, we might suffer for it. But here it's just like, really? Like, come on, God, like, doesn't Paul get some sort of perk where he doesn't have to worry about this sort of stuff? Like, this wasn't his own sin. This wasn't the sin of other people. It was just like a storm and now a snake bite. Like, what's going on? Right? And so, like, that's unsettling for us, just so you're aware. Right? Like, maybe our Sunday school theology is just kind of like, no, if if we follow God, then life's going to go great. You know? Like, we'd like to think that this sort of thing wouldn't happen to us. Okay? So, let's keep reading. So it says, when the native people, these barbarians, saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. And though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Okay? So, so these barbarians had a sense of justice. They were like, this guy has done something wrong, and surely life has caught up with him. Right? Like, the ship went down. That was probably his fault. It was, you know, whatever gods exist, we're probably trying to kill this guy. And now, and now he's, he's done for. And he, however, shook the creature into the fire and ends up suffering no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. All right, so like drastic differences. We've seen people uh, think that Paul was a god before when he's been able to heal people in some of these Roman cities, right? And he's like, no, 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 like I'm not a god. I'm a man just like you, all right? But yes, the power of God is working through me, right? That I could preach this gospel. And so here we see verse seven. Uh, So this happens and now they kind of settle into this island. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened after that, right, that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed. And putting his hands on him, he healed him, right? So God's working through Paul in this tremendous way. And when when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So we see that God, working through his Holy Spirit, working through Paul, is empowering him to do these awesome things amongst these people, all right? And so verse 10, it says that they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So so it just seems as though there's just this really nice island of barbarians, Right? Like they're kind to us, right? They've, they've right, met our needs, giving us whatever we needed, right? They had these, this sense of justice, of right and wrong, and that if you do wrong, then surely, right, there's going to be some penalty for that, right? They, they just had this innate sense of being decent people, right? They believed in spiritual things, right? They thought that God would bring judgment on those who do wrong, that, that maybe Paul was a God when he did not die, or when they, they even experienced, right, these these incredible healings, right? We saw that they were hospitable. The, the guy who's in charge of the island cares for all of these prisoners and centurions for three days and just kind of throws a party, right? Like, these are awesome people. Like, I want to I live with these people, right? Right? They're, and then they're super generous, right? They send them away with everything that they need. And Luke doesn't write down whether or not Paul actually preached about Jesus to them. 
It's unusual. So is Paul perhaps thinking, he's like, you know what? These people are good. They've got it figured out. They probably just don't need Jesus. In fact, like these are nicer than some Christians I know, right? Like you might have thought that. So the question is, okay, so what do we do with this, right? The question is, do nice people need Jesus? Right? Luke didn't write down whether or not he told them. So let's, let's take some of these things piece by piece and look at some of the texts in the Bible, some of these different instances, and try to figure out what does God say about these things? What does Jesus say about these things? Because how we answer that question is drastically going to change our mission as a church, right? It's going to drastically change kind of the amount of effort that I even put into this of just like, I don't know, like maybe I'll just stay home and be nice on a Sunday. I'm fine doing that, right? Like what's, what's the big deal? So let, let's consider this. How about, how about kind people, this unusual kindness, right? Are kind people good enough on their own? Are they justified in their own good works? Are they, are they right, saved on account of the, the good things that they've done? Let's consider that. And like I said, this is a lot like the people in our valley, right? Katie and I moved here the day before Hurricane Irene, and we saw this community get together and serve each other, and right, second homeowners were like letting their houses be used by families that had lost their homes, right? This community just came together in this tremendous way. And yet then like, you know, Ben and Zach and their families are coming here to plant a church. You might be like, no, these people are okay. They've got it together. Well, they probably don't need this extra stuff with Jesus. But nonetheless, like, right, are kind people saved on their own? And so when we look at the Bible, we've got to be careful here because sometimes do-goodery can be dangerous, right? It can give us this innate sense of like, you know, I'm, a, I'm just a nice person. I'm a decent person, like... You know, I, I respect the fact that maybe other people are into this Jesus thing, but I don't really think I needed to be saved from anything, right? When, when, when we're a nice person, we might just think like, you know, like I, I don't really do anything wrong. There's surely there's far worse people than me. And if God exists, right, like I've got to be on the better half of the list than, than the worst half. Like I could list some people that are, those are not nice people, but I'm, I'm a nice person. Right before I became a follower of Jesus, right, even as like a middle schooler and early high schooler, I was a kid who just, I wouldn't even swear. Like no cussing, right? Like I was just like trying to be a good kid. Like I, I was just like a nice guy. That's what people would say about me. They, they wouldn't date me, but they thought I was a nice guy, okay? Right? But, but nonetheless, like I still ended up recognizing this need for Jesus, where I was like, man, like if this stuff is true, then it's got to be the most important thing in my life. And I knew that it wasn't. And even though I could put on a good show for others, even though I looked kind and nice to others, right? Like I knew that I still struggled with sins. I just was pretty good at keeping them secret. Or like even within my own heart, right? Like I would have attitudes and ideas and thoughts that were not godly, right? Like this was an issue. This was an issue. And so I recognized like I needed a savior. But, but if we rely on our own goodness or kindness, it's dangerous because we might think we've got it on our own. It's actually, it's self-righteousness is the way that the Bible would describe that. And yes, I agree, like nice people, right? They're really nice people that are out there. But if in our pride we don't recognize our need for forgiveness, right? The Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, so this is interesting, right? This is interesting. Here, here's, in terms of nice people, like just so you're aware, 
all of us, right, struggle with, with something. All of, like, no one here today is here because, well, I hope not. Maybe show of hands. Like, who thinks they're perfect today, right? Like, you're, you're just coming to church because you've got your life all together. Okay, yeah, <laughs> here we go. But, uh, <clears throat> but check this out in, in James chapter 2. Uh, this is what, what he ends up saying. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law does everything right but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All right, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. All right, so yeah, like there's parts of like the law, like maybe I'm good at keeping six out of ten commandments, okay? But like I can't like just be like, I don't even understand why so-and-so struggles with sin. Like I don't even deal with that issue that they deal with. Like you might, there might be parts of your life that are actually pretty well put together, and it's just not a temptation for you, okay? But, but if we fail to keep one part of the law, it's not about which part you failed. It's about who we dishonored. It's about who we rebelled against, right? For he who said, right? He who gave the law, he who gave the commands, it's the one that we're sinning against that's the issue. And in fact, right, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, right, he, in case you're like, well, I I don't think I've committed adultery or murdered anyone. So according to James, I'm doing pretty good, right? But Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, That if you're angry in your heart against your brother without cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. Or you've heard it said, right, you shall not commit adultery, quoting the same verses as James here. But he says, but I say to you that if you lust after a woman in your heart, right, you've already committed adultery. The point that Jesus is making is that, right, even in our own hearts, we are rebellious against the law. All right, like he was making sure it was clear that this is where the standard is, And he's saying, like, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, like, then you will come into judgment. Like, what are you going to do? The most holy people that were on the earth at that time, he's saying, like, you need to be more holy than they are. And so, like, when we hear that, we're like, yeah, Jesus, no murder. I like it. Wait, what? Like, even, like, anger is an issue? Or even, like, lust? Wait a minute. You're telling me that I'm guilty because of... Like, we don't like that, but Jesus kept the bar high only so that you and I would both know that we missed it, right? The purpose of the law was meant to identify our need for a savior, that it's not just our actions that are the problem, but we as humanity are infected with sin, that God needs to give us brand new hearts. That's what Jesus came to do. And so similarly to these nice people, yeah, like you could tell us all of these kind things that these barbarians were doing. But they're failing in some point, just like each of us. Check this out in terms of God's kindness that he shows us. In Romans chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, right? God has shown us the ultimate in mercy and grace and kindness, right? Our lives were a shipwreck and Jesus chooses to die in our place for our sins. But we've got to be careful not to misinterpret what that kindness is meant to do, 
right? If I go on living my life, rejecting Jesus and just assuming, well, God's kind, like obviously he'll just forgive me later when I die, like it's no big deal. Like, no, the purpose of that kindness is to lead us to repent, to turn from living our lives our own way in rebellion against God. That that kindness is meant to do something. And sometimes there can be those who, right, presume on God's kindness and then spit in his face with the gift that he's offered. Not unlike if you were shipwrecked and show up on the island of Malta and they start a fire, right, they make sure you're warm, they get you some blankets, and then you, like, rob and murder them at night right, like taking advantage of their kindness, that, like, they wouldn't be thrilled about that, right? That's the same sort of thing. It says actually in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the Bible, like, balances this idea that there's, there's God's kindness and mercy and forbearance, but there's also this day of judgment. And we have to reconcile the fact that God is somehow both holy and just and kind and gracious at the same time, right? That he's, he's loving and holy at the same time, right? But his kindness is meant to, to draw us to him as we recognize the great disparity that, right, between us and our sin and who he is, and that yet he comes and pursues us anyway, right? That he, he seeks to save the lost and sinners. And notice, right, this verse talks about this idea that there is this day of justice coming, so let's, let's consider that. How about the, the barbarians, they, they had this innate sense of justice. They had a view of the world that if you do something wrong, eventually right should be done, right? That, that the, 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 the wrongs that are done should be made right, that justice should be done, that, that there are right and wrong things, that even if you were to get away with it, right, that eventually it would catch up with you, right? Whether you'd call that karma according to some worldly views, or the, even the biblical sense, that you reap what you sow, right? That if you live a life planting seeds towards your flesh, right, towards hatred, towards all of these things, that eventually you will reap the harvest back on your actions, all right? So, like, these barbarians seem to have a, an okay worldview almost there in terms of doctrine, that, that those who do wrong, it eventually should catch up with them. But we've got to be careful in interpreting, right, when Paul gets bit by that snake, sometimes people have the view of like, oh, if something bad happens to you, you must have deserved it, which isn't actually always the case, okay? Like, like in Paul's life or in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus doing everything right and then horrible things happen to him anyway. So we can't, we can't interpret the fact that, right, if you do wrong, there will be consequences, but then flip that around and say, if someone's experiencing what appears to be consequences, they must have done something wrong. That's not necessarily the case, okay? Reality's a little bit more complex than that. But nonetheless, these people seem to think that, all right, there should be justice out there. There's, there's right and wrong, right? That they would tend to try to do what's right, and they felt that those who did wrong, that life would catch up with them. In Romans 2.14, it says this, that for when Gentiles who do not have the law, so Gentiles are just those who are, are not Jewish in heritage. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. And Paul writing this passage, he's saying that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, right, they show, let's see, oh, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying that even those who have never heard of the Ten Commandments, God has placed in them a conscience to identify right and wrong. And Paul is saying that whether you are of Jewish descent or of Gentile descent, that we all have a degree of accountability. We have this sense of right and wrong. And what's interesting is that even though we have this sense of what the right thing to do is, even by our own standards, we recognize that we fall short of that, right? That God has placed this in us so that we would recognize, once again, our need for a Savior. And so, so what's interesting is that these people, they had this sense of, of justice, this sense of right and wrong, and Paul would say, yeah, God gave you that, right? You should have this craving for the world to be a better place. You should have this desire to see justice done, to see those who are oppressed lifted up and freed, and to see those who do wrong and are cruel to have justice brought against them, right? That's something that God has placed in you, right? That's what Paul would say about that. But that sense of right and wrong or our own morality or comparative morality isn't enough to be something to save us, all right? God placed that in us for the sake of our identifying our need for him, our need for a savior. All right, how about this next thing? These, these ba- uh, barbarians, I wanted to say Babylonians, but that's not what they were. Barbarians believed in spiritual things, right? They believed that there was a justice out there. They believed that, right, maybe Paul himself was one of these gods. They had a variety of deities that they would have served. They believed in spiritual things. So like, I don't know, like maybe they were right on some of them. Like, what? Who's to say that Paul's gospel was any better than what they already believed? Right? What, who's to say? But, but consider this. I'm going to summarize the story about Adam and Eve. That, that belief in God is, is not actually sufficient to save us. Belief in the supernatural or the spiritual isn't sufficient to save us. That, that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they actually believed fully that God existed. They believed fully that God had made them. They were completely persuaded that God even spoke to them. But the thing they didn't believe was God and the words that he spoke. It says in Genesis 3, and I'm summarizing it, but it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast, right? He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of all of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That in this temptation, the serpent wasn't trying to be like, you know what, God doesn't exist anyway. It doesn't matter what you do. He actually never questioned that. He never questioned the fact that God spoke to them or that God created them. The thing that he questioned was God's motive. Was God someone who could be trusted? And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so in terms of like, our sinning against God, our rebellion against God. It's not a matter of do you believe that God exists versus not. It's a matter of do we believe what God says, right? Do we trust in the Messiah that he's provided, right? Do we trust 
in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, so I just want to point out, like, biblically, we see this is the case. Or, or at James chapter 2, he says this, you believe that God is one, and you do well. Like, you're on the right track, right? That's a good thing, that you believe in the existence of God. But he says, even the demons believe and shudder. All right, that, that just the fact that you believe in some supernatural out there, some spiritual, right, that the universe is somehow like on your side or benevolent or kind or whatever it is, isn't sufficient. Like the issue is, do you believe God himself, right, as he's revealed himself to us through his word, right, through coming down onto the earth and living among us and showing us what his heart is like, showing us that he loves us, that he cares for us, right, that he gave his life for us. Do we believe what he said? Or do we just maybe believe in some sort of spirituality? So Adam and Eve, even though they believed in the existence of God, they still experienced consequences for their choices. Or as James says, like demons, they, they probably have a better theology about God than some of us do, but they're still going to experience the consequences for their choices. All right, how about these barbarians who were hospitable and generous? Right, this is a good thing. If we're followers of Jesus, we should be a generous people. We should be marked by generosity. We serve the God who gave his best, right? Who gave his life that we could be saved. So we should be generous people. But our generosity, although required, right? Although something that is fruit coming from the life of a believer is not the thing that makes someone a believer. Okay, consider this. In Acts chapter 10, there was a a Roman centurion named Cornelius, all right? Uh, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously, right, to the people and prayed continually to God. So you might think, like, hey, same book of the Bible, right? Book of Acts, same time period. Right? You might think this, guy, this guy's a pretty decent guy, right? He, he's praying to God like he's, he's giving money to the poor all the time, right? People only have positive things to say about him. He's a really nice guy. And yet God actually knows that in his current state, that wasn't enough. That God actually sends an angel to him and tells him that, right, that there's going to be a man who comes to you and gives you this message. Right? At the same time, God gives this vision to Peter, all right, a follower of Jesus, and, and tells him, listen, you've got to go find this guy. Right? He's sending a servant to your house right now. You've got to go to him. And yes, I know he's a Gentile. I know he's not a Jew like you, but you are going to go into his house and tell him about me. And so God coordinates this whole moment in order for Cornelius to hear about Jesus. And when there, Peter preaches to him, and in verse 43, it says, right, to him, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What happens is that the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and all those who are with him that they believe in Jesus, they're, they're baptized and become followers of Jesus. And so even though he was this incredibly generous person, he was attempting to please God, God was not pleased to leave him at that state, right? God sent his son to die for Cornelius. God sends Peter to bring this message of good news about forgiveness to Cornelius, right? God was not content to just be like, no, this guy's, this guy's got it together, he's all right. Like, he's trying real hard. He's praying all the time. But like, no, God wanted more for Cornelius. God wanted relationship with Cornelius. 
And so here's the question. Can a generous person be saved by their own merit? Can me doing kind actions, being caring for others, being compassionate, be enough to maybe outweigh the laws that I've broken, the sins that I've done? In fact, we cannot ransom ourselves from the debt that we owe. There's no amount of paying it back that we ever could do. Okay, it says this in 1 Peter 1, a letter that he writes to the church. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So we were ransomed, but not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so we can't redeem ourselves by giving enough money away, by being kind to others, by doing enough good deeds. In fact, like trying to redeem ourselves with silver or gold, that's like, it's corrupt, right? Like it's an insult to God, right? God gives us this tremendous gift. And it would be like on your birthday, if someone bought you this incredible gift and you're like, hey, hey, you know what? I couldn't possibly, here's a dollar, we'll call it even. I'll just, I'll pay you for this gift. And like, they're like, no, this was actually like $10,000. But you're like, no, we're even, we're good. Like, I don't even feel bad about receiving this anymore. Thanks for finding it for me, but here's the dollar, we're good. Like, they'd be kind of like, nah, that, uh, that's not how it works, right? <laughs> like, no, like, you can't pay me for this gift. This is a gift that I'm giving, and you're not even close to paying it off. All right, it says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writing again. So he says, what then? Are we Jews better off? All right, those who have this heritage as the people of God, right? The children of Abraham, are we better off than those who do not? Right? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not, not, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. But then in verse 20, he says, for by the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? So, so it's not by our attempting to keep the law that we would find ourselves justified before God. Just like if I was to commit a murder and then I tell the judge, no, 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 but I, I like, then I went around and picked up some litter around the block, so we're good, right? Like I can't do enough kind works to outweigh the wrong that we have found ourselves in. And Paul continues in verse 22. He says, For there is no distinction right, between Jew or Greek, right? for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Right? It's this gift that God offers to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the salvation that God offers is this gift that he gives, paid for by Jesus' blood, and it's received by faith. We can't earn it. But yet, nonetheless, right, our generosity or our kind actions or good deeds can't pay for this. Generosity should mark the life of a believer, right? Jesus said that, right, if you Right? Visit someone in prison if you care for the sick, if you give a cup of cold water to a kid, you are doing it as unto him. Like, we should be doing these things. Right? We need to be caring for others. 
But the gift of salvation, it's received by faith. All right, how about this thought? These barbarians experience supernatural miracles in their midst. Right? Maybe they were so nice, maybe they were so decent that God sends Paul just to go and like heal their sick and just be like, you guys are great, you guys are awesome, right? Like, stay right where you're at, you're fine, right? Like, they experience these miracles of God. So like, if we've experienced some supernatural experience, right, if we've seen God do some gracious thing in our lives, bringing about healing or something like that, does that mean that we're all set with God? Does his momentary grace or favor indicate that we're, we're clear with him? Like, that's an interesting thought. Here's, here's a couple stories from the life of Jesus. One time, Jesus heals 10 people with leprosy, right? They go on their way to show themselves to the priests to show and verify that their bodies are, in fact, cleansed from this disease. And then Luke 17, verse 15, it says, then one of them one of the ten, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan, an outsider, okay? And then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this, this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All right, just because we experience some like healing from God, some tremendous miracle, doesn't mean that like that's where God wants us to stop, right? He wants us to continue in relationship with him. He wants us to worship him, that the faith of this one man, apart from the faith of those nine, made him well. That word well is linked, I believe it's the Greek word sozo, which means to be saved, healed, delivered, and made whole. That as a result of continuing to pursue Jesus, he got something far more than just a physical healing, right? That Jesus wants more for us than just that. Or in John chapter 9, Jesus ends up healing this guy who was blind from birth, right? That he ends up uh, being accused because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, that the religious leaders, the Pharisees are upset about this, and they're like, who was this guy who healed you? What happened? Tell me the story again. Right? And he's like, hey, listen, like, I don't know if this guy is a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And then like, they keep interrogating him and asking him again. And he's like, oh, maybe, maybe you guys want to be his disciples too. Is that why you keep asking me so much with so much intent? And it's kind of like this, I, I like the guy's sense of humor in the midst of a really tense situation. And so Jesus ends up finding him, John 9, verse 35. And, and Jesus heard that they cast him out of the synagogue, out of their community. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, "Uh, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. All right, so Jesus wasn't content to let this man's being healed of blindness be where he left him off. Right? Jesus wants so much more for him. Right? That he wants this guy to trust that Jesus is the Messiah. The Son of Man are these prophecies from the Old Testament about this Messiah coming to forgive us of our sins. Okay? Like, that's who Jesus wants him to trust in. And so just the fact that these barbarians experience the supernatural does not necessarily mean that that was sufficient indication that they, that they were saved. 
that they trusted in Jesus. And so, and so consider this with me, like, do nice people need Jesus? Do decent people need Jesus? Did Paul preach to these barbarians? Because Luke didn't write it down for us. But check this out. Romans chapter 1. This is Paul writing. He says this, uh, I am under obligation both to Greek... Unfortunately, the audio for this sermon cut out. But you can read more in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, in which Paul describes his obligation to preach the gospel to barbarians and everyone else. And read a story from Jesus' perspective uh, in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, where he describes a parable uh, dealing with those who see themselves as self-righteous.